great singing. It's good to see so many of you here, and certainly at Cactus Campus, Northridge, our chapel, uh, those of you online, and then, hey, thank you for those of you in Overflow. We put a brand new wonderful screen over there, so hopefully that's hopeful for you as well. You know, we're just all sort of gathering together, re-entering, uh, and uh, praying a lot for all of you, and certainly for our culture at this time. Uh, along that lines, I want to mention a couple things before I pray. I don't usually do this, but you know, when I first went to church 30 years ago or whatever, when I first became a Christian, almost 40 years ago now, I, it was a different kind of world back then. Some of you will remember this. You were handed this thing called, called a bulletin. Remember that? It was a paper imprint of all the things going on. And, and in that was an order of service. Remember those? So like, you know, you, you know everything coming up in the service. And then they'd even tell you what the pastor's gonna preach on next week. And uh, it was like a really high control environment back then. And now we've kind of chilled out a little bit. But once in a while, I do like to let people know where we're going as a church over the next few weeks, and you'll see why I'm doing this in a second here, so that you can be prepared and plan accordingly. So today, it was mentioned earlier, we're capping off a series that's an annual series called Get God, Get Real, Get Out There. <clears throat> and I think you're going to like where we're going today in a great challenge from Jesus on getting out there. And then next week, I'm going to be uh, doing some, some writing. I got to finish editing a, a book that I wrote. And so Dr. Daryl Dohuse, who is our pastor emeritus, is going to be preaching next weekend. And I, I got to tell you, I mean, it's open topic, so who knows where God's going to lead him, but it should be outstanding. He's an amazing teacher of the Word of God. And then in two weeks, here's the biggie, uh, we're not starting a new series yet. In two weeks, I'm going to be back, and I'm going to be doing a, a one message uh, that, I, that I've done kind of twice before in 2012 and 2016. See where I'm going with this? I'm going to do a message that I've called Biblical Values for Voting. So I'm gonna talk about biblical values that I think in our democratic republic that we, you and I as Christians should take into our voting practice. Some of you are going, oh my gosh, he's gonna talk about politics. Yes, I am in two weeks from now. But I'm not gonna talk about politics. I'm gonna talk about biblical values that our current political culture has hijacked and, and asked us to comment on. Do you understand how our democracy works? We are asked as Americans to vote. You don't pull a lever anymore, but to vote. And, and, and when we vote as Christians, we need to vote the values that God has given us. That's just normal. And our culture welcomes that as part of our political process. So I'm gonna talk about what some of those values are as I've done before in the past. We're gonna spend a whole Sunday on it so that we can all be together. Uh, I'm not gonna tell you how to vote, but what the values are as we move forward. So the reason I tell you that is to give some of you forewarning, that if you don't wanna hear your pastor uh, talk to you about that, then it might be a good day to golf or go for a hike. Or if you need to remain spiritual, there's tons of other pastors that won't be talking about that that day, and you can grab one online. This is your church and we love you, but I do this once every four years. I feel very strongly about it and so do so many of you and I believe it's what God wants me to do and so I'm gonna do that in two weeks. Then once we're done with that, we start a new series and you're gonna love the new series that's gonna take us up through Thanksgiving. It's called The Questions God Answers. 
the questions God answers. Think about it. Christians and non-Christians alike are constantly you know, asking God questions. In fact, I hear people even say, when I die, I can't wait to ask God this. And I've always said, well, you're probably not gonna do that. But anyways, you know, we ask God these questions. The problem is most of us ask God questions he hasn't answered and that he's chosen not to answer. And, and again, maybe in heaven he will, but the converse of that is that there's a lot of questions that he has answered. And many of us miss out on our spiritual life because we're so hung up on the ones he has answered and we're not looking at the ones he has, or he hasn't answered the ones he has. So we're gonna spend seven weeks looking at the questions God answers. And it's gonna be a great series for you to invite a friend to and to dial into yourself. It, it's gonna be uh, quite a spiritual journey. So. That's where we're going, uh, be in prayer for your church. We're doing amazing right now, given all things that are going on. As we encourage you guys, you're doing amazing. So enough preamble, let's bow and pray and we're gonna dive into the word. Father, I thank you for uh, your church. I thank you, Lord, that your church for 2,000 years has shone brightly through dark times and not so dark times. And that, Lord, we've learned that, that our church is not held hostage by culture around us, but we're the church no matter what. And so, Father, I pray that as we uh, talk about these things today and what it means to get out there and to minister in the name of Jesus, and then even, Lord, in a couple weeks as we talk about our right to have a say in the moral fabric of our culture and what that means, Father, I pray that you continue to guide us as both your people and as individuals who follow Jesus. So we yield this time to you now, God, as we open up the very words of Jesus. Speak to us, I pray, in Christ's name, amen. So the first church that I served back in Detroit in the 1990s uh, forever taught me a massive lesson on what happens when a church decides to stop playing games and get out there. Uh, the church I served back in the 1990s was a very, very old church. In fact, they had been around like so many churches in America for decades. They predated World War II. It was a German Baptist church. And again, like so many churches in America, they started, now don't miss this, as a safe haven for a particular immigrant population in the craziness of culture back then to be a safe haven to get away from all that and be with people like them. And that's how a lot of churches started. And this was a German Baptist church that was filled with Germans and Baptists and many other people weren't really welcome to come to it. This is kind of funny, after World War II, they decided to stop speaking German. That wasn't a good thing to do anymore. And so they started to open it up to other people over the years, but it still remained relatively cloistered. And in the mid-1980s, a young pastor from Indiana came to this church, not me, my senior pastor, and he decided that that church needed to change that that church had to get out there and start to interact with lost people and culture in a way that it had never had. So he hired two staff. He hired a young uh, youth pastor and then me, a young associate pastor. All of us green behind the ears, but excited to do the work of the ministry. And we got out there in a way that we never have. And in doing so, we began to f see the face of Jesus. One of the first things we did as we got out there is we started to interact with a lot of lost people, a lot of tax collectors and sinners. And one of the things that we learned is that lost people are interested in God. 
There's something in them that says, I, I thirst for God. He must, I, he must be out there. I want to know him. And we introduced people to Jesus and we saw lots of conversions and every one of them had a name. I remember them for the rest of my life. Nancy, Mark, Todd, Richard, Chris, Mickey, Janice, Tom. Real people from all walks of life who discovered Jesus because a church got out there. But then we realized as we got out there that there was a lot of problems. In Detroit at that time and still today, a tremendous amount of drug and alcohol addiction. So we opened up our church, and in opening up our church, we started hosting the largest Narcotics Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous meeting on the east side of Detroit. Every Tuesday night and Wednesday night, our church was filled with addicts. In fact, this created some stir uh, because they were meeting and getting clean and sober and all that, but, but smoking a lot of cigarettes. We had to install ashtrays outside the main entrance of the church. The Baptists didn't like that, but we told them it was better than, than smoking inside the church. But we had a lot of people coming at, at that time. And then we realized there was a lot of marital breakdown and personal struggles, so we started a counseling center that still exists to this day, an off-site mental health outpatient clinic from a Christian perspective. We realized there was a lot of fatherlessness and ransacked neighborhoods as we got out there in Detroit. And this is a great story. There was a guy, you guys remember Kinko's? It was a uh, copy shop. There's a guy who owned three Kinko's co copy shops and, and he sold them because he got excited about Jesus and he took the money and he started a citywide ministry that still exists today that met the needs of young kids, fatherless kids in Detroit. It did mentor, mentoring and literacy program and sports clubs all from a Christian perspective. He became so excited about ministry that he's now the current senior pastor of the church that I was at there in the 1990s. And then we decided to deal with the issue of racism. There's a lot of racial barriers in Detroit. And so we decided to break down some walls and engage in church partnerships. And it eventually led to my senior pastor leaving the church and starting a new church in the heart of the city, a very multicultural church. You guys get the idea. A, 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 a staid old Baptist church decided to get out there and it was messy. I mean, just picture it, a decades old, ingrown, used to being with my only, only with my own kind church, now getting out there and dealing with all kinds of people. In fact, they used to call me, my friends did back in the 90s because we were all new to ministry and my buddies from seminary would say, how's it going, Jamie? And I, and I, and I said the same thing all the time. I said, here's the good and the bad. The good is, is that we are doing what Jesus did and we're hanging out with a lot of tax collectors and sinners. So the problem is they don't stop collecting taxes and sinning as quick as you think they would. Uh, so we're neck deep in sin, applying a lot of grace, but seeing the face of Jesus around every corner. And that's the point. We saw Jesus when we got out there. We heard him. We witnessed him move in profound ways. We experienced his presence and power. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you guys, but we actually started saying that though we're seeing God change a lot of lives out there, he was changing us even more. Because we were experiencing him in profound ways out there, and we were becoming different people as a result. You know, Jesus predicted this would happen. He told a story when he was on this earth, a powerful and timeless story, 
that just about every generation for the last 2,000 years has latched onto and made their own. And it's interesting, I've never directly preached on this story, though I've referenced it a thousand times, but it's time that I preach on it and I spent all week just in this story. And so what I wanna do is read it for you right now. I'm not gonna put it on the monitor because I want you to experience the story like Jesus's original hearers did, and that is that they heard it. So this is all red letter stuff, it's all the words of Jesus. I wanna read for you this story that he told and just listen to it and soak it in. And we're gonna spend the rest of our time, about 30 minutes, talking about these words of Jesus. He says, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in and naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they themselves will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life. <laughs> Whoa. I warned you, this is a hard-hitting story if there ever was one that Jesus told. And it's a powerful story. So let's wrestle with it for a few minutes here. And to best understand what Jesus is getting at here, I want us to focus on three things that he says in this story that will allow you and me to forever get it. Three handles that we need to grab onto that will allow us to, to enter into the action of this story. And they are the who, the what, and what I'm gonna call the wow. The who, the what, and the wow. So rather quickly, let's just look at the who in this story. When you look closely, there are three sets of players here. The king, the nations, and the least of these. The king, the nations, and the least of these. The first player, the king, also referred to as the son of man, is easy to identify. Do you guys all know who Jesus is talking about when he refers to the king, the son of man? Say it with me. Oh, come on. Our third graders would know the answer to this. Jesus is the answer. I've told you, if a pastor asks you a question in church, 90% of the time, the answer is Jesus. So just say Jesus. 
and you're gonna be fine. So obviously Jesus is the king here. We know that because he says the son of man. And the son of man is from the book of Daniel, also repeated in the New Testament as a regular reference to the Messiah, which obviously was Jesus. So there's no question here that the, the king referred to in the story is Jesus returning, the second coming now. And he's returning and he immediately gathers all the nations for judgment. That's the second player, the nations. And again, Again, that's really easy to identify. You're going to love this. The nations is everyone. <laughs> Jesus gathers all of humanity, now resurrected and, and, and on this earth, and he gathers everybody who's ever lived, and he divides them very simply into two different groups, the sheep and the goats. Clear biblical imagery that they would have gotten back then. It was an agrarian culture back then, and, and most families had a few sheep, and they had to tend the sheep all day long, and sheep were valuable and prized because they were, they were made for clothing, their, their fur, and, and they would be, make good meals and all that. So everybody had a few sheep and, and goats were not as well prized unless you like goat milk or something like that. And during the day, the goats would get mingled in with the sheep. So every night you had to separate the sheep from the goats and the sheep were good and the goats were bad. And the Bible uses this imagery of sheep to refer to the followers of God all the time. So when Jesus says sheep and goats, they all would have gone, yeah, we get it. We know what you mean then. All the nations gathered, sheep on your right, goats on your left. And then there's a judgment of all the nations that refers now to the third set of players. It's a judgment based on what they did with the least of these around them. Now, this is where it gets a little bit hazy or at least um, argumentative uh, because Jesus didn't just say the least of these. He said the least of these brothers of mine. And for 2,000 years, Bible experts have kind of bickered back and forth on what Jesus meant by these brothers of mine. Some see this as a reference to Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus has said, hey, your mother and brothers are here. And Jesus says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Only he who does the will of my father are my mother and my brothers. And so they argue that what Jesus means here in Matthew 25 is that brothers refers to only his followers, only the church. So they argue that everything that follows here is how we treated each other in church. But there's others who argue, no, Jesus is referring to all of humanity here. That brothers he's using more in a full orb sense to be referring to all of his creation that he has made. And they link that to Luke chapter 10, the story of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus says, hey, whether somebody's a Christian or not, a Samaritan or a Jew, care for them if they're in need. And again, commentators bicker back and forth on which is it here. And I was, in my research this week, I read a great article by a gospel coalition pastor out of Canada who was wrestling with this issue. And he said the obvious that some of you might be thinking right now. He said, well, doesn't the Bible say you should minister to both? <laughs> Couldn't Jesus be referring to both? And he's exactly right. Look at what Galatians chapter 6 verses 9 and 10 say. It says, let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, here it is, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So the logic here is, is that the church needs to get out there and care for everyone, the least of these, but also remember to care for your own, because if you don't care for your own, they're not gonna be very good to those outside. So who is the, the, the who here that Jesus is talking about? Three sets of players. 
Jesus the king who's returned in his glory, the nations comprised of sheep and goats, and then the least of these, anyone in need of love and care as they've been beaten up by a fallen and brutal world. And this now brings us to the what. And the what has everything to do, now don't miss this, with how the sheep and the goats got out there and responded or didn't respond to the needs before them. In other words, it's brutal and it's judgment because it's a judgment based on actions. I'm gonna show you this in a minute. It's not a judgment based on how you felt or, or your good motives or bad motives. It's a judgment based on what you did this side of heaven in response to the needs that are out there. There's no way around this. Now, before we look at the actions, however, I do need to address one issue that has caused some people to stumble with this story over the years. If this was the only story that Jesus ever told, if this was the only story that ever occurred in the Bible, which it's not, but if it was, you would easily walk away thinking that salvation, heaven or hell, is attained by your good works, right? Because that seems to be what this story is saying. That if you do good to the least of these, then hey, you're going to go to heaven, you're a sheep. If you don't fail to, if you fail to do that, then you're a goat and it's off to hell. That's the way this story seems to read. If that's the only story that was ever told in the Bible. It's not. There's lots of other stories Jesus told. There's lots of other teachings in the Bible. Now watch this. And those teachings make it very clear that our salvation is not dependent upon our works. I'll explain what the story's getting at here in a second. But first we need to understand there are way too many other Bible verses, way too many other teachings of Jesus that make it clear that our salvation, our standing before God, has to do with our faith and our trust, not our works. Probably the quintessential passage on that is Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, that should forever settle the issue. It says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And that faith isn't of yourself, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. So it's very clear. The Bible says, God is concerned about the disposition of your heart, who you're trusting in, and whether your faith is in him and his son, Jesus. And if it is, then eternal life is yours. If you reject him, well, then good luck, because it's not gonna go very well. And your good works or lack thereof are not the determining factor of your salvation. So what is Jesus getting at here? Ah, what Jesus is getting at here is saying that for those of you who say that you believe in and trust in Jesus, is there anything that you can show, hint, hint, as you get out there, that would show you really love him and care for his mission on planet Earth? In other words, your good works are the result of your faith and love in Jesus, and they demonstrate whether you're really a sheep or not. This is affirmed by other Bible passages. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.10. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, meaning Christians. All Christians need to appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That word recompensed means rewarded. 
And so it's simply saying here that as Christians who are going to be with Jesus for all of eternity, he is going to judge us based on what we did in the body and our reward will be commensurate or recompensed for that. That's what Jesus is getting at here in this story that our actions or lack thereof reveal whether we are true sheep or just goats in sheep clothing. So with this understanding, I want you to notice with me the absolute heart now of, of the what in Jesus' story. And it all centers around, you heard him earlier, six actions that from the text could easily be put into four buckets. You're gonna like this. This is so real. The four buckets are this that somebody was hungry and thirsty and somebody gave to them. That's an action. And, and then there was somebody who was a stranger. The word means alone in a strange land. They, they didn't have any friends. They didn't have any fellowship. They were strange to their environment. And somebody invited them. That's an action. They beckoned them into fellowship. And then there was somebody who was naked. This is brutal. I mean, this is a sexual imagery here. And instead of somebody taking advantage of that nakedness, which is what would happen back then and even today in our fallen world, somebody came along and clothed that person and took away the shame. That's an action. And then there was somebody sick and imprisoned and somebody visited and came. Four actions of the sheep, four inactions that reveal the goats. And what hit me this week as I was meditating on this, again, I just spent a lot of time with this story this week asking God, you know, what are you saying in this? And, and, and it hit me that all of these actions here are things that we do with our hands and, and with our bodies. They, they truly are actions if there ever was one. So, so kind of follow this. When there's somebody who is not fed or is thirsty, what does Jesus say to do? Stretch out your hands open up your hands and give freely. So give to those in need. That's the first action. You reach out, open up your hands and release. That's an action. And then if you, while doing that, confront a stranger who's also alone and without people in a strange land, you take those same hands to give. Now watch this. And you beckon. You pull those hands in and say, Come closer to me. Let me provide for you fellowship and care. So you're giving, you're beckoning. And then I love the third image here. If you meet somebody who is naked, who, who has been sexually traumatized or, or just doesn't have any clothing and is very vulnerable, as you now have pulled people close, you provide covering with those same hands. You clothe that person. You take away the shame by bringing healing and covering to their lives. And then I love that fourth image. If there's somebody still way out there that is sick or in prison, you, you drop your hands, you take your whole body, and you go wherever they are. That's how you get out there. You give, you beckon, you cover, and then you go. Those are the four actions Jesus talks about. They're the actions that show you're a sheep. They're the actions that we need to take in getting out there. And so in today's world, they would be actions like this. You help a single mother by buying glasses for her teenage son and daughter because she can't afford them. Your hands are reached out, you release, and you give. 
Or maybe you strike up a friendship and show kindness to an undocumented person here in our state, beckoning and welcoming them. Or maybe you provide food and clothing or even pay the mortgage for a brother who has lost his job due to COVID-19. In other words, you provide covering for somebody in need, housing and needs that they can't afford right now. Or you see a widow or a person in prison and you go, if they'll let you, you go and you visit them and you bodily be with them. Folks, there's no way around it. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Though I'm not down on our church at all. In fact, I think you guys do an amazing job in many ways of this. I know what so many of you do. I, I never tired of seeing you do this. This week I was walking on campus on Wednesday, and I'll talk about that in a minute, my life here, because I, I am reevaluating a lot of what I'm doing here in light of what I, I, I read this week and what God spoke to me this week. But I was walking on campus Wednesday for my usual meetings. Many of you would not like my life. I come on campus here Tuesday, and I have meeting, 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 meeting. Then I come on campus Wednesday, I got meeting, 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 meeting. And they're all good meetings, because uh, they are out of plan worship and evaluate worship and deal with staff issues. We have 45 pastors and you know ministry development and all these things. So I was coming on campus Wednesday morning, and in the parking lot were about five or six of my pastors, and then some other guys gathered around, and this motor home attached to a truck, and they were getting ready to go somewhere. And I was actually glad I caught them, because I usually know what's happening here, and I knew what they were doing. That a bunch of them were going to be going up to the Navajo reservation with our minister up there, our missionary Nick, and his wife Leslie, and they were going to be going to spend two days with a church that we're partnering with, uh, meeting the needs of the hard-hit Navajo reservation in, in this part of New Mexico. And, and they were going to just work, work, work for two days. And on Wednesday afternoon, maybe it was Thursday, they sent me a picture, because I met with them in the parking lot and prayed for them, and I was never more proud of your pastors. I, I mean, here's Neil way in here, uh, you know, lifting a box. This is Rick from Cactus Campus uh, lifting a box. In the truck there, you can't see him, but it's Billy Kavnis from our men's ministry. Uh, this is one of our, our missionaries uh, with, with, uh, with a, just came to us from Africa, and now his wife Caroline is on staff here, and, and, and they're doing amazing work. And, and then there was some Navajo leaders here, and they're just loading up the truck. And I'll keep that picture for a long time as just a reminder that our pastors, many of them, are just on the front lines doing exactly what Jesus calls us to do, as many of you are as well. You need to know, too, that this is your elder fund at work. Uh, they take a lot of the money that you give for the elder fund, and we literally give thousands of dollars every month away to the needs in our community and in our state, uh, to the least of these, uh, meeting the needs of people uh, around us. You get the idea. Jesus makes it very clear that our faith needs to get out there and get out there by giving, welcoming, covering, and even going to the least of these. And I know it sounds ominous, guys. I wrestled with this all week. But, but I mean, he is so serious about this. Jesus is so rabid about this that if I'm reading this right, it's actually going to be a front and center issue when he returns. He's actually going to return and say, hey, what did you do? Did you get out there? His judgment is going to be centered on this and whether our faith expressed itself by getting out there. In a very real way, he's going to say, are you a sheep or are you a goat? And it's not complicated. 
It comes down to our actions. It comes out to whether we got out there or not. Because here's the amazing thing, and this is what Jesus knows, and it's really the point of his story. And that is that if you and I will follow him here and get out there numerous ways every week, day in and day out, then we're going to see not just his movement in the lives of others, but the very face of Jesus as we minister to other people. I call this the wow, the wow. One last time with Jesus' story, look at what happens when we get out there and care for those in need. Jesus couldn't be more clear. He says in verse 40, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, here it is, you did it to me. Don't overlook that. You did it to me. And again, commentators and Bible experts wrestle with exactly what does he mean <laughs> by you did it to me. I mean, that nice little word picture going on there. Is he actually hovering in and around that situation? I mean, what does it mean? And we know that this is kind of radical because even the players in Jesus' story, both the sheep and the goats, are blown away that in ministering to those in need or not ministering to those in need, that they are actually ministering to Jesus. They couldn't believe it. They surely had trouble understanding how this would be so. And even I wrestled this week with what the theological implications are of that. What does it mean, God, that we actually minister to Jesus by ministering to the least of them, both inside our church and, and in our community? And, and, and this is really what hit me. And, and you're going to like this, so there's, those of you who are theologically minded. And that is that when you think about it, when you're ministering to another brother or sister in need, obviously you're ministering to Jesus in them because Jesus indwells people who believe in and follow him. Galatians 2.20 is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So there's an indwelling Jesus in his followers. And when you minister to one of them, you're ministering to him. That would make sense in a very, very real way. But then I thought about it. What about when we're ministering to those that don't follow Jesus or even have refused to follow him? Well, James chapter 3, verse 9 says that those same ones deserve our care, love, and respect. Why? Because they are made in the image of God. They are image bearers who have the stamp of God on their very soul and their very lives. And in a very real way, when we minister to them, we're ministering to God. So either way, whether it's the indwelling Jesus or the stamp of God's image on them, when we get out there and minister especially to the least of these, Jesus isn't kidding. We're ministering to him. And if you've ever tried it, and you've ever experienced this, you realize it's true. You see the face of Jesus in the least of these. It truly is a spiritual experience. You know, Mother Teresa of Calcutta wrote a lot about this and talked a lot about this when she was alive. Probably her most famous quote that you can find all over the internet is this one, but I love this quote of hers. She says, I see Jesus in every human being I say to myself, this is hungry Jesus, I must feed him. This is sick Jesus. This one has leprosy or gangrene, I must wash him and tend to him. I serve because I love Jesus. <laughs> See, Mother Teresa argued all her life that the reason that she served in the, in, in the slums of Calcutta in these terrible conditions and, and, and terrible odds and just against the odds was because in doing so, she saw Jesus in all that she did. It's a great story that uh, of a reporter who was on visiting Mother Teresa. Lots of reporters did and tried to understand why she was doing what she was doing. And this reporter, after spending a few days with Mother Teresa, said a very honest statement 
that Mother Teresa, I think, appreciated. Uh, he, he said to her, he said, I just gotta tell you, I, I so appreciate what you're doing here, but I wouldn't do what you do for a million bucks. She looked at this reporter and said, neither would I. She said, I do what I do. We do what we do because we are happy to do it because we see Jesus in doing this. Her motivation obviously was never money, nor should yours be. The motivation was because in so doing, we show ourselves his followers and we get to experience him in the process. And you won't know, gang, until you try. Jesus nails it. He says, when you try, you'll realize you did it to me. And so the question that should be ringing in your ear is where and how are you revealing yourself as a follower and a true sheep? What you need to realize, folks, I hope you do, is that you have opportunities everywhere around you. The average Christian today, conservative one, listens to Fox News and gets mad at culture around them. I get it. I share the anger at times too. But isn't it interesting that your Savior, who looked at a ransacked, rebellious, Roman-led city thousands of years ago, wept over that city and said, I long to gather you like a mother hen would gather chicks. That's the response Jesus wants us to have. And until you get out there and minister to the least of these, you're just going to remain angry. And that's not where Jesus wants us to be. He wants us compassionate, merciful, involved as sheep in a lost world that desperately needs him. And, and you know, I thought about a lot of you this week. I, I know what you're thinking. I mean, again, I, I, I'm going to confess in a second here. I'm, I'm almost with you. It's terrible. Some of you, if you're really honest, would say, well, Jamie, I, I mean, I get it. I get that there's needs out there, but I just don't see it very often. <laughs> I mean, I live in a nice neighborhood. I drive a nice car. I got a nice club I go to, and uh, you know, I go to nice restaurants, and I, I just don't really see it very much. And, and think about what you're saying there. You're basically saying, if you're honest enough to admit that, that you live a very sheltered life. You think you're in the know because you watch the news, <laughs> but not because you're actually involved in the hurts of the society around you. Your church has taken the opposite approach. I'm not down on Scottsdale Bible Church through this message. In fact, as I audited the last 55, 60 years of our church here, I'm so proud of this church. But we have partnerships with, with two dozen organizations, regular weekly partnerships. You saw one of them on the, on the screen here, in which we are sending people to the least of these all throughout the week. Here's what you need to simply know. There's room for you. That if you, too, want to be somebody who gets out there, your church stands ready to do this with you. Talk to your Pastor Rick. Talk to your Pastor Ray. Talk to your Pastor Kevin. Talk to Neil or his team in here, Ryan and Dan. They stand ready to help you get out there and to see the face of Jesus as well. Two last thoughts, and we're going to wrap this up. Some of you have heard me all morning long calling this a story. Have you noticed that? The story that Jesus told. I did that intentionally. I wanted you to ask the question if you haven't asked it already is this a true story or is this one of them parables again that Jesus told? Commentators actually wrestle with that too. Boy, they bicker back and forth about a lot of things. And some of them argue, no, this is a fictitious story like a parable. It's not really going to happen. And others say, no, 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 you're not reading this right. And I think they're right, by the way. They're saying this reads very much like an Old Testament prophetic prediction. 
they argue, and I think they're right, that this is really going to happen. Jesus didn't use fictitious characters here. He really is the king. He, he really is the son of man. There really are nations. There's a simile going on here of sheep and goats. That's the only thing parabolic in this. But there really is going to be a judgment. All those things will happen. And so what Jesus is doing here, and couldn't he be, I mean, he's so loving to us. He couldn't be more loving. He's upstreaming this for you and I. He's saying, Brian, here's what's coming down the pike. <laughs> do you want to be a sheep or do you want to be a goat? And when I realized that, that this week, I thought, I'd like to be a sheep. <laughs> and some of you are saying right now, and this is my final thought, well, Jamie, surely you're a sheep. I mean, you're our pastor. How could you be other? I'm not down on myself, but I will tell you that I feel very convicted. I, I hinted at that earlier a, a, after spending this whole week in this story of Jesus's. I, I told you a story earlier, my 10 years in Detroit. And this week I was almost in tears as I realized how much I missed those days. I wasn't the pastor of a mega church back then. I didn't have meetings all day Tuesday and all day Wednesday. Back then, I was involved, and I was out there. I, I was meeting with African-American pastors. I was meeting with addicts. I, I, I was meeting with lost people. I, I probably spent 50% of my day nowhere near the church or my office. We got out there, and I saw the face of Jesus in ways that moved me to no end. And, and, and maybe some of you can relate to this. As you get older as a Christian, you start to settle in. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> And, and, and pastors do that more than anybody else. We, we start to build the church. God blesses it. Things are going great. We start more campuses. You know, we're, we're doing a lot of good things. But, but my job now is to, quote, manage that and to lead and cast vision and all these things that I hear, to work with the board, all things that I enjoy. And I know God uses me. But this week, I actually asked a question, and I hope you have the courage to ask it too. What has your life become, Jamie? Is this really the call of God for you? <laughs> to spend the next 10, 20, 30 years, whatever God has for you, in an office, <laughs> managing ministry, doing this, doing that? Or would you rather maybe be out there again, doing some frontline stuff? Don't worry, I'm not announcing my resignation quite yet. <laughs> I'm not. But I am asking the question, what does God want for me? That's all I ask you to do. Just ask the question, are you on the front lines? Man, I, it was everything I could do Wednesday, not to tear off my church clothes and throw on my jeans and jump in that truck as they were all going up to the res. I wanna be there. I wanna be where Jesus is, how about you? He says, blessed are the meek, for there is the kingdom of God. And he spent a lot of time with tax collectors and sinners. In fact, he spent so much time with them that the religious leaders were mad at him. Maybe I gotta get people mad at me. Maybe I need to start spending so much time out there that people wonder, what's happened to our pastor? I want to shepherd you. I want to love my church. I'm not making threats. I'm telling you what's in my soul. And what's in my soul is I want to see the face of Jesus. And I know you do too. And it's out there. It's in here too. But it's out there. So let's get out there. Father, thank you for the very words of Jesus, for this powerful story that I read often, but many times just sort of do a drive-by with it. And I thank you this week, Lord, that you got me in a headlock and wouldn't let me drive by it. And I pray, God, that for me and for all of us, that we would be men and women of integrity, 
who are not afraid to get out there and give and beckon and cover and go. And Father, I pray that as we do that, because so many of these dear people are, that we will continue to be used by you with the least of these, to give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name and to make a dent in this world for the kingdom of God. And Lord, help me. Help me to be a man of integrity there too, who even as I lead this place is not afraid, not, not, not shy to get out there as well. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.